You are listening to the Passion City Church podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Grant Hartrick. If you were at church last week, um, the message was called Goodbye Shame. And we were talking about the freedom that Christ has purchased on our behalf by standing in our place and taking and paying for all the debt that our sin had caused. It's in theological terms. Last week we talked about the idea of justification. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is where we spent our time in the first few verses that say, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that somehow by the grace and mercy and power of God, as he looked on your life and looked on my life, for those of us who are in Christ, with all the information laid out on the judge's table, he looks at us and sees the price his son paid, and when the gavel drops on our life, somehow guilty though we are, we are declared innocent. We are declared not guilty. This that we're justified, acquitted. This is what justification means. And this is reason for celebration, that our condemnation was transferred onto Jesus and Jesus' righteousness was transferred onto our lives. This is what's known as the great exchange. And today I want to talk about how do we respond to that kind of mercy, to that kind of miraculous gift, mercy that made us alive with Christ even while we were dead in our sins. You know, every gift elicits a response. It's a birthday month in our house. My wife and I's birthdays are just five uh, days apart, and so we're gearing up for that, and Christmas is around the corner, and um, I don't know if you can remember, I was thinking earlier about the time when Maggie and I were dating, and we got to the point where we were going to do Christmas gifts for the first time. It's a little bit of a scary thing because you never talk about like a budget, you know, like when you're married, you got budgets and stuff. But when you're just dating, you don't talk about that. So when you get to the moment and and you never want to be the first person to go, by the way, you want to be the second person to go so that when you open up the gift, you have two options. You either feel really good about the gift you have or you can prepare to blame everything on shipping delays. And say, well, I only have part of your gift, but the other half of the gift is still on the way. Have you ever been there? It's like you, you got her a candle, and she's like, well, I got you this iPad. And you're like, well, you're, you're, the rest of your gift, I, I promise, you've heard about you know, all these shipping delays. It's coming. Or I can remember at Christmas time, uh, you ever uh, opened a gift, and, and, and it's really fun to give a gift, because as soon as somebody opens it, you can see on their face their response. Like, that's one of my favorite things about our young kids, is like, if we give them a gift, and they love it, they're going to tell you. And if we give them a gift that they hate, they're not going to fake that they like it. They're just, they're just not going to do that. I can remember uh, opening gifts from one of my grandmothers uh, when I was growing up, and I love her. She's with the Lord now. She's amazing. No knock on her. But I can remember every single Christmas opening up the gift she would give me, and I would want to say to her, hi, I'm Grant, your grandson. Have we ever met before? Because I would never wear that, you know? Like, why are you getting me a sweater? I'm 14 years old. 
in our house, you grew up in a house of all boys. And I don't know if you have a house of all boys, but the way we would do Christmas is you would get the gift from under the tree, you would shake it, and if it wasn't heavy and didn't make noise, you would just throw it to the back. Like nobody's interested in getting more clothes. But every gift elicits a response. And I want to talk today about what should our response be to this miraculous gift that we've been given that we talked about last week, that guilty though we are, as in the high courtroom of heaven, the gavel drops, that somehow by the grace of God, we are declared innocent. It's Luther that said it this way, that justification, this idea of us receiving a verdict of not guilty, that's what justification means. He says, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. That a faith that saves us and doesn't change us is really no faith at all. That God's desire, if you want to know the 30,000-foot the view of, of what I believe God wants us to hear today, and you want to check out for the rest of the message, here it is in one sentence, that God's desire is for you to be conformed into the image of his Son in every way. The moment the gavel drops, we are declared righteous. We're in a position of being righteous. We are declared holy. There is a stamp on our lives, and we are not guilty. And yet, at the exact same moment, a process begins in us where we actually are becoming righteous and becoming holy. Oh, we have the status of being righteous because of justification, but there is a lifelong process of becoming righteous, which in theological terms is known as sanctification. And as Paul is writing his theological masterpiece of Romans, he never separates the two ideas. Where there is freedom in Christ, there is a desire to grow and be like Christ. Sanctification simply means being set apart for holy purposes. In core, we define it this way. It's the process by which we become more like Jesus over the course of time. So last week, you are stamped, you are marked not guilty. We're not awaiting more information. We don't have to come back to the courtroom after you live a few more weeks to see how new information may sway the judge. It is one time for all time. That's what we just sang about. It is finished. To tell us die, nothing left. There's no deliberation happening. The judge isn't still out. The verdict's in, and we are not guilty. This is our position before God. It's a one-time event. It's not continual. You don't have to come back into the courtroom next year. That's what justification is. And yet in that exact same moment, a continual process begins in us of becoming holy. And it is important for us as believers to know that these two things always go together. They are inseparably linked. They are distinct in and of themselves, but they can never be disconnected. That our salvation not only has past implications, not only does it free us from guilt and shame in the rear view mirror of our lives, and not only does it have future implications of being with Jesus in paradise for all of eternity in heaven, but our salvation also has present implications in the way that we live our lives. Grace is more than a passport to get you into heaven. Grace is power for you to walk as children of God today. It matters how we live. It doesn't just matter what you sing. It doesn't just matter where you show up on Sundays. It doesn't just matter that you know how to play the game of religion. It matters how we live. God has not saved us for us to continue living in our old 
ways. It matters how we live because God is holy. That's the most true thing about God. He is holy. Leviticus 19.2 says, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. And in the next chapter, he says, you are to be holy to me because I am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. In the New Testament, Peter brings in the same language in 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God's desire for his children is that you would be conformed into the likeness of his son in every area of your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, the chapter that we were in last week says this, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You and me are in a process of being molded and shaped day by day. Oh, we have the status of being perfect in Christ, of being holy in Christ, of being saved in Christ, but we also are being saved day by day, perfected day by day, being made holy day by day, being made righteous day by day, until ultimately we reach perfection in Christ when we see him face to face. Romans chapter 8, I want to read just a little more context around where we were last week so you can see this idea playing out, this, this two-pronged idea that we're set free in Christ, that we're made uh, innocent in Christ, that we have a verdict of not guilty in Christ, that we have been justified, acquitted in Christ, and yet at the same time, that is in order that we might grow in Christ-likeness. Romans chapter 8, let me read the first 13 verses. We'll read a lot of uh, scripture today. Is that okay? Hope so, because we're going to do it either way. (laughs) Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen to that. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, our flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he, God, condemns sin, our sin, in the flesh, not our flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, not by us. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor could it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, amen, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness, 
And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Verse 12, therefore, brothers and sisters, this is the conclusion of verses 1 through 11. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we, the children of God, have an obligation. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There's a few things I want to pull out and that are important to see here around this idea of sanctification. Number one is that there has been a change in power that, is, that enables and fuels it, the possibility of there to be a change in our life. You, you see it at the very beginning of Romans. It says that in Romans chapter 8 that because through Jesus Christ the law of the Spirit gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there has been a change in power, and all week I've been thinking about this great chapter. This is my favorite chapter. Really, there's a couple, five, six, seven, eight of Romans. I've been thinking about what Paul is communicating in Romans chapter eight, and yet every single where I, every place that I go, every radio station I listen to, every TV program I listen to, every billboard I drive by is screaming about this possibility of, is there going to be a change in power? Might there be a change in power? Because that's going to impact everybody under the authority if there is a change in power. And it was as if God was going, that's what Paul's saying in Romans 8. That's what Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 is all about. There has been a change in power. Someone new has stepped into office. The law of sin and death that used to rule us and govern us and control us is out. And the law of the Spirit now, which brings life and peace, is in. And because of that change, you are no longer bound in sin and in your flesh. You are now under a new master, not controlled by the flesh, but controlled by the Spirit. The second thing you see is that sanctification, this idea of becoming more like Jesus, this continual process, is a process and not an event. So justification is a one-time thing. The gavel drops, you are declared innocent, you have the status and verdict of not guilty. It's a one-time event, it's not repeated over and over and over again. But our sanctification is a process. And all the married people said, amen. And we don't like that, because we're an impatient people. We want things done like this. We want to show up. We want to do the thing. We want the result of the things to be. I'm never going to struggle with that again. But I don't know about you. That was not my story. <laughs> like I, I met Jesus, put my faith in him. There was a conversion that happened of me becoming alive in Christ, being born again into Christ in newness of life. There's justification of me being stamped as innocent. The verdict's in. I'm not guilty. And there is a process that began. But I remember even the day after the process began, I wasn't where I hoped I would be. And in a lot of ways today, I'm not even where I hoped I would be. But I am in process. We would prefer things to be immediate. Uh, one of my friends, Clay Scroggins, describes us as the people who burn our mouths on Hot Pockets. <laughs> so the longer you think about that, the more indicting it is. Like, I'm, uh, I do not want to take the time to cook a real meal, so I'm going to put it in the microwave. 
And then once it's out, I do not have the time to allow the, my microwavable food to cool down, so I'm going to burn my mouth on the hot pocket. We like things to be instant, but sanctification is not an instant thing. It is a process where day by day we are being renewed and perfected into the image of Jesus. Even Paul in Romans chapter 7, speaking in the first person about his own life, kind of describes this struggle. He says in verse 21, so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But yet I see another law at work inside of me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am, Paul says. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And here's his conclusion. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. It does not mean that we will not continue to struggle against sin and death in darkness. It simply means that sin and death and darkness will not ultimately triumph over us. James Stifler, in his commentary on Romans here, has this great line. He says, gravity never ceases, but it may be overcome. In 1903, when the Wright brothers were taking their first flight, many had tried and uh, planes had, uh, planes had uh, hopped and bumped and gone up and come back down, and they've tried to figure out all these things. And yet in 1903, as the first flight takes off, they strap this little engine to their 605-pound aircraft. I don't know if you feel safe when you get up on Delta, but could you imagine going up on an aircraft that weighed 605 pounds? No, this does not seem like a safe endeavor. And, and, and when they were there, the reason why all the planes that never made it up into the air and all the experience never made it up into the air is because there is a law of gravity, a real downward pull, a force that cannot be escaped. But yet somehow the Wright brothers flew. Their plane took off. And when they got in the air, there was still gravity. There was still a downward pull. There was still all the same gravitational pull that there was for all the other ones who hopped and skipped but never took flight. So how did their plane fly? Well, it's because attached to their plane and inside of their plane was an engine that did not escape gravity but defied it. And in a very real way, this is what the Spirit does inside of us. You have an engine inside of you that does not escape you from the downward pull of sin and death and the flesh. You still will have desires. You still will fight. You still will struggle. But there is a greater power now who has taken office that makes it possible for you not to escape the gravitational pull, but to triumph over it. This is what's possible for us as believers. So how does it work? Well, it works like this. It's a co-op between the Spirit and us. You say, well, who does the work? Is it us that does the work, or is it the Spirit that does the work? Yes is the answer to that question. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 say it this way. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good 
purpose. We have a role to play. It says, work out your salvation, not experience salvation and then wait it out until you are in heaven, but while on earth, work out your salvation. Working out takes effort. That's why I don't work out. My friend Jody, right here, two-time Ironman boss, enjoys it. She like rides a bike for days at a time. I'm like, I would rather drink coffee, have bacon, and cinnamon rolls. That's just how I'm wired, you know. But working out requires effort. I can remember when I was training as a tennis player, I had this one athletic trainer that was so obsessed with like never wasting a second. So I would finish this long workout. I remember this day, I finished this long workout and then I go into the athletic training room and I'm getting in like an ice bath. Doesn't that sound fun? Two words that should never go together. And I'm in this ice bath and it's kind of like my time to rest and recover. Like you don't really have to do anything except just sit in this ice bath. But there was new technology out at the time. There were all these little sticky things that you could put on your abdomen muscles so that working out could happen to you. So while I'm sitting there in the athletic training room, I get these little things clipped onto my abs. And have you ever seen these things? While you're sitting there, you could just be talking and then every randomly, every like 14 seconds, it's just like, and then it lets you go. And when it happened, like the second time it like got me, I just went down, passed out for real. Had to call an ambulance. And here's the reality. Working out is not something that happens to you. Working out is something that you do. So some machine being hooked up to me cannot work me out. I have to be involved in the process of working out. And so it is with us as we are working out our salvation. And yet, even in our working, we are working with that which has been supplied by God. It says, God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So if it's God who does it, then what do we do? How does this co-op work? Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. Look at these two verses. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation. We should take that seriously. But it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit, look at this language, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So we better understand how by the Spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body. How does the Spirit kill the flesh? How does this work? Well, a lot of different ways in the New Testament talk about it, but Ephesians 6, 17, maybe is the clearest place. It says this, Paul speaking, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The weapon that the Spirit uses to wage war against the flesh is the word of God. You see, even in the description of the old self in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, in describing how we were living under the old governing that happened before we stepped into our new authority, that in the old authority, one of the descriptions of them in verse 7 is that they do not submit to God's law. So it is true of us as children who are now under a new reign in a new power that we are to submit our lives to the word of God. Not just to be in the word of God. 
It's not enough for you to get the verse of the day in the morning, and that's it. Being in the Word's great, but it is not as great as being under the Word. Whereas you say, I'm, I'm not just interacting with the Word, I am actually submitting to the Word. So what you say goes. What, what you will over what I will. That's the difference that we're called to have. And as we do that, as we plant and anchor our lives into the word of God, it is a sword in the hands of the spirit to wage war against the flesh in our lives. My favorite preacher says it this way. It is the will of God to have the spirit of God use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. Isn't that good? Let me say it one more time. I can't quite do it as much justice as HP does, but it is the will of God to have the Spirit of God use the Word of God to make the children of God look like the Son of God. We work with the power supplied by the Spirit to be conformed into the image of His Son. In your strength and in your might, you cannot produce spiritual fruit. I remember I used to think about the um, fruits of the Spirit, and I would, think, I would think about them, and I would think about which ones are you know, evident in my life, and how can I make the ones that aren't evident in my life evident in my life. But it is interesting that even in the text in Galatians, these are not the fruits of hard work and effort. These are the fruits of the Spirit. So the Spirit is the one who produces the fruit, working in us. So, so what do we do? Because the Spirit has to be the one that produces the fruit. But we can engage in disciplines and activities that will cultivate our relationship with God. Like intention, you know this to be true from your own relationships. Intention does not build relationships. Investment does. So I, I can desire and I can intend to be a great husband to my wife. But if, if I never tell her that I love her, if I never take her on a date, if I stay late at work every single day and play golf every single day of the weekend, if I do all these things that don't line up and match my intention, she could care less if I intend to be a great husband or not. What is required is that my intention leads to investment. And relationship is built by investment. Dallas Willard, who's one of the best minds around the disciplines, the spiritual disciplines, says this about human intentions, which is powerful. The general human failing is to want what is right and important, but at the same time not to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right in the condition that we want to enjoy. This is the failure of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. And so there are things that we can engage in. We can't force fruit to pop up in our lives, but we can invest in our relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as we do, we will watch the Spirit begin to work in us to birth this kind of fruit. Things like prayer, engaging in prayer and scripture and engaging in giving and generosity and in worship or solitude or silence or all these things that are biblical ideas that God has given us to go. You want to invest in our relationship? You can do these things. Here's the beauty of it. You don't have to desire to pray to pray. Yeah. 
You can control that. And actually, as you take steps, you will find that the Spirit of God really likes that. So the Spirit's going to begin to change your desires to His desires. And all of a sudden, that which you were forcing yourself to do, now you will have a desire to do. You see Paul all through five, Romans 5, 6, 7, 8, when he's talking about what is this change that's supposed to take place, one of the primary things he says is that we are to change the way that we think. Paul uses that word a lot, think, or he uses the word mind. Set your mind on things above. Where your mind goes is where you set it to go. One famous commentator said this, that we have to adopt a mindset that reflects our new identity in Christ. See, what you think about and what I think about, that's our decision. Now, are thoughts going to come into your mind? Yes, but what does the scripture says? It says that I have authority over those thoughts to take them captive and bound them up and make them obedient to Christ. I love what Ben Stewart says here. He says, what you think about will be what you care about. And what you care about will be what you chase. Watch yourself. What do you entertain in your mind? So how do we respond to this gift of God? How do we respond to this radical grace that we have been offered? By the power of the Spirit working in us, we respond by offering everything we have and everything we are in response to what Jesus has done for us. Romans chapter 6 It says this in verse 4, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ, who was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, that we too may live a new life. Drop down to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. There is a new power that has taken place because you are not under the law. You are under grace. I can remember having this temptation to really believe that once I received salvation in Christ, that I knew that in the courtroom of heaven, I had been declared innocent. And, and Paul talks about this all through these things, because your temptation is just to go, well, cool. Then does it really matter how we live? That, that's, the, that's the question that Paul asks right after he talks about justification. He goes, well, should we just keep on sinning then? Like, does it really matter how we live? He goes, no, 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 no. You definitely don't do that. Yes, you have been stamped as Innocent, you have been given a not guilty verdict. You have been made righteous in Christ. That is your position before him. But there begins at the exact same moment a process where day by day there is a chipping away of the old and a putting on of the new. And our responsibility is to yield to the spirit in our lives and to offer all of our lives in response to who Jesus is and what he's done for us. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, now what's the therefore? You got a picture for it now, (laughs) given everything that's happened in the courtroom of heaven. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, how do we respond? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul says in his conclusion of all of Romans 1 through 11, as he's talking about what's been accomplished for us in Jesus, he says, therefore, in view of that mercy, what's he mean? He goes, man, open up the door room of the high court of heaven and watch your case play out in full. And as you do and you hear the gavel drop on your life and God Almighty, the only one who can judge, declares you as not guilty, as you're acquitted, as you're made righteous, as you're giving a standing of holy before Almighty God, when you get that kind of glimpse, when you peek into the courtroom and watch that kind of mercy take place in your life, the only way you respond to a gift like that is to offer your body in return. I love what he uses the word body. See, because we, we tend to try to splice things up, you know, like, well, I'll give you this and not this. And, and people in the day, the religious people of the day would do the same thing. Like, well, I got my mind and I got my heart and I got my hands and I got all these different aspects of me. So I can offer you a few things. And Paul just goes, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to use the word body here. The totality of who you are. Nothing off limits. Nothing held back. In response to the mercy of God, you get everything God. And then he says, this is holy and pleasing to God. Think about this reality. This is crazy that you and me can be pleasing to the God who created everything. Not just when we get to heaven and we're in glorification and made perfect ultimately, but you could be pleasing to God right now during your time on planet Earth while you're still under the gravitational pull of sin and death. You could be pleasing to God. And then look what he says. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Maybe your translation says, this is your reasonable worship. The word in Greek is logikos, which is where our English word logical comes from. So it's as if Paul is saying, Open the door to the courtroom of heaven and watch your case play out in full and hear that the judge declares you innocent and righteous and guilty and there is no debt left on your account because Jesus swallowed it up in full and cried out, it is finished. You have been justified, acquitted, released, not guilty, has been stamped on your life. And how do you respond to that? You offer everything you have in return. And then it's like Paul says, it's the only logical response. Like anything less than offering your body in return, anything less than that kind of response to that magnitude of a gift is illogical. You mean to tell me you could have the mercy of God in view? You could watch all this play out and yet there could be some part of you that wants to keep dragging the old flesh around through life? That's an illogical argument. That somehow if you've tasted grace, if you've tasted mercy, if you've been forgiven in Christ, everything in you begins to change. Your desires begin to change. You desire to be holy and pleasing to God. And you want to be conformed into his image. And you hold nothing back from him. And so I wonder, even for your life right now, is there still a sensitivity in you to the gravitational pull? Is there still something in you that as sin is evident in your life that, that still hates that. Like John Owen has written all of his entire works around this one verse in verse 12, the mortification of sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Is there still that desire in you to fight, to kill it by the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit? 
Or has there become this thing in you that just maybe intentionally or maybe not intentionally, but just goes, you know what? I kind of got these three things and overall I'm doing pretty good, but I got these kind of three things and these are just my three things. So I'm going to kind of limp through this life until I ultimately make it where things are going to be made perfect. And I think the word of God wants to say today, no, 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 you show up and you put your whole life on the altar, everything on the altar. You rally your community around you and go, man, this is where the flesh is alive in me. This is where the darkness is alive in me, but there's a spirit within me that can cause me to transcend above this and I want to fight being perfected day by day by day by day by day. We are called to fight, to be holy, to be perfect. I don't know if I like that. That sounds a little bit legalistic. You want me to be perfect? No. God does. The difference between being, the difference between perfectionism and sanctification is that in perfectionism, you're trying to be perfect in your own strength and power. And sanctification is not that. Sanctification is trying to be like Christ by the power of the Spirit. And that power has been given to us. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.